All right, everybody, welcome back to the Bible Study Podcast. I am Travis Pauly, and here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. I'm here as always with Wes McAdams. Hi, Wes. Hey, brother. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm great. I just got back from two different camps that's, this past month, so... That's right. I'm glad to be home, but it's been it's been good. It's been good. good. And we're back, and we're going to have a, uh, a question from a listener, Jacob, today. Jacob says, hello, Wes. I've been listening for a while and absolutely love the podcast, and I want to thank you for all you do for Christ. I have a question about an idea and some verses I've been struggling with understanding, and I'm hoping you will be able to shed some light on it if you deem it worthy of a podcast and have time. As a younger Christian who is very much aware of my sinfulness and brokenness, I often worry about my relationship with God. I strive to grow, but how do I relate to God when I struggle so mightily with my sin? I know God is loving, full of grace and mercy, but does he expect more from me than I give him on so many occasions? Does he get tired of seeing me sin? As someone who struggles with self-confidence to a fault, I have really struggled trying to balance the crucial ideas of biblical humility, but not self-loathing, and also the confidence that followers of Jesus should embody, but we are so flawed. One passage that really is giving me fits is trying to understand and unpack the author's intent in 1 John 3, 19-20. In particular, I am wondering what kind of condemnation of the heart John is referring to. These verses do give me confidence that I am not God, so when I label myself one thing, God probably does not see me the way I am seeing myself, and his thoughts are what matters. I was wondering if you could help me put these verses in context and shed some light on this passage and what these verses mean for followers of Jesus. Thank you so much in Christ, Jacob. Wow, great, great question. Yeah. Great question, and very well worded. Very so, well. Yeah, Jacob um, is struggling with, uh, what did he say, self-confidence. Um, I One thing he can be encouraged by is that he is very thoughtful, yeah. very well worded, obviously very spiritual. So Jacob, thank you for, for submitting this question. Thank you for your thoughtfulness. Thank you for your desire to follow Jesus. And and I think, and I'll say right at the outset, that that anyone who has the heart to to be what God wants them to be mm. are typically not the people that scripture is warning about mm. when it warns about people falling. We've talked about this kind of thing before, I think, that that the people that need to be warned are the people that are not awake to their own sin. They're mm. not aware of their own sin. They're they're just living oblivious to it, or they're aware of it and they don't care and they're apathetic mm. about it and they're just doing what they want to do. Jacob does not seem to be that sort of a person. No. Um, and so there is a there's a sort of a paradox there is that the the person who is the fallen believer or the falling, maybe that's a good word, a falling believer, mm. a believer who is in danger of being apostate is typically the kind of person who doesn't care or doesn't know that they are being rebellious, that are oblivious to their rebellion or they're apathetic towards their rebellion. But the one who says, oh, why do I always do this? Why do I keep messing up? And I want to do what's right. And I'm struggling with this. That's exactly the kind of person who is faithfully following Jesus for the most part. Right. It's it's exactly the sort of idea that Paul is expressing in Romans when he talks about that struggle with sin in the flesh, and that if we're in the flesh, and as long as we're in the flesh, we're going to continue to struggle with sin. Um, and if salvation was only available through the law— 
there would be a futility to that. And that's why we need Jesus, because we we cannot uh, we cannot be saved simply by being perfectly obedient mm. uh, to rules and to regulations, and there's only death in that. Um, and so that's that we do find this this battle that Jacob is talking about, this battle of wanting to do the right thing, but continue to do the wrong thing or not doing the good thing that we want to do. And so we do struggle with this. He asks questions like, uh, does God get tired of seeing me sin? Yes, God gets tired of seeing us sin uh, because he loves us the same way I get tired of seeing my my kids struggle with something, but not tired in the sense that oh, I'm going to kick you out of the family. Right. If my kid is struggling with something, especially if he wants to do it right, but he's struggling with getting it wrong, I get tired of it on, empathetically. Right. Not tired of it like angrily or yeah. frustrated, like I, I'm done with you kind of a thing. Uh, if if our children, if as a father, my children are struggling to do the right thing, if they, as long as they want to do the right thing, I want to help them. And yeah, I, I empathetically get tired of it on their behalf and want to see them achieve the next level and, and take their life to the next level. But that doesn't mean that, that I... I don't understand or that I I don't want to continue to struggle with them and to walk with them. Um, so I don't think that God gets tired of us in that. It depends on what we mean by does God get tired of seeing us uh, seeing a struggle. Uh, he asked questions, Jacob asked questions like, does God expect more from me than I give him on so many occasions? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I mean, God expects all kinds of things from us, but he is gracious. And I think that's where we have to start this conversation is sort of broken two, so we're going to take it, break it into two parts. The first one is, how can we have confidence mm-hmm. that we really are in a right relationship with God in spite of the fact that we continue to struggle with sin? So that's the first part. And the second part of the question is really about First uh, John chapter 3. So he's asking, uh, what does First John 3, 19 through 20 mean? What does that, that passage mean about when my heart condemns me? And we'll talk about that in a second. So that'll be the second part. We'll get into that text. But first, let's talk about salvation. Like, even that word salvation, it implies that someone else is doing something for us. Mm-hmm. If, quote-unquote, salvation, it would sort of be an oxymoron. It wouldn't make sense to say that we saved ourselves. Like, you can't save yourself. Right. You have to be saved. Now, that doesn't mean you don't participate in your own salvation. If, right. if somebody tosses us a, um, a life preserver, then we, quote-unquote, save ourselves by grabbing hold of it, but right. we don't get onto the boat after we've been yanked out of the river, out of the ocean, and we don't get on the boat and say, well, I saved myself. No, no, the, the whole fact that you needed saving means that you weren't capable of doing it. So the New Testament is not just a new set of rules or a set of rules for the Gentiles in order to save themselves if they follow this book closely enough. Unfortunately, we've sort of We've sort of driven that idea into people's minds and hearts that, okay, here's the New Testament. These are your rules. The Old Testament was the the rules for the Jewish people. And now you Gentiles, now if you want Jesus to save you, you do all of this stuff. It's like, that's not the way we we should think about it. Mm. And we've had this struggle for the last few hundred years um, or even longer with with Calvinism. And and because Calvinism mm. has taught the idea that once you're saved, you you can't be lost, or the people that that really are saved will always be saved, that the, the real title of it is Perseverance of the Saints, mm. which 
by the way, those who hold to a Calvinist doctrine actually have sometimes less confidence in their salvation as we do. We tend to think that Calvinists, and some Calvinists have this idea like, well, I'm saved, so I can do whatever I want to do. I'll just party it up because I can't be lost. And there are people that fall into that category, but people that are very Reformed, people that are very Calvinistic, people that really believe in this idea of perseverance of the saints, they think that that means that God only saves his elect people, and you really will never know that you are elect until you've persevered through your entire life. So maybe, maybe at the very end, if you haven't fallen away by the end of your life, maybe then you can say, well, I guess I was elect. I guess I was chosen by God. But until that point, you don't really know whether or not you're chosen. You don't really know whether you're part of the elect. And so they don't have any confidence either. But I think those of us that don't hold to Calvinism, we've fought so hard against once saved, always saved. We've sort of taught once saved, barely saved. <laughs> and we, we've got this idea that, yeah. that you, you're saved, but you could lose that at any moment. Like if you mess up, even in the slightest way, you might lose that. When, when, you, said, when you were describing Calvinism, I thought, and then you said that, that barely, once saved, mm-hmm. barely saved, I thought, that's not really different. Right, that's exactly right. Everybody is sort of wringing their hands, saying, "Oh no, maybe I'm, maybe I'm lost, maybe right. I'm lost," and that's not what we find. And to Jacob's point, that's not what we find in Scripture. We don't find in Scripture this sort of uh, cowardly, uh, "Maybe I'm lost, and I don't really know if I'm saved." We find this bold confidence. I just finished reading a tremendous book on on Hebrews uh, by Michael Whitworth. It's a new commentary that's coming out. Little plug for Michael's book. I'm going to have him on the podcast here pretty soon uh, to talk about that book. It's tremendous, and I love the book of Hebrews because it gives us this tremendous confidence before God, before the throne of grace, that we have confidence before Him because of what Jesus has done for us. And so this idea that I can't ever really know whether or not I'm saved, Mm -hmm. whether from a Calvinist perspective or not, that's not a biblical perspective, that we should be able to know for sure, I am one of God's chosen people, I am saved, I am in a right covenant relationship with Him— not because of what we've done, but because of what God through Jesus has done for us. That's that's where it all comes down to. We we struggle with this um, obedience. We struggle with faith. We struggle with uh, doing the right thing um, and and wondering, am I lost because I haven't been morally perfect? Because I've made mistakes? Because I've sinned? Uh, so I want to read a passage we're probably all familiar with, Ephesians two, starting in verse one. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. <laughs> and I love I love those, those passages that say, this is who you were, and, th- and that's who we were in spite of our re- religiosity, hmm. I think that's what we have to recognize is that even religious people, this is true of both the Gentile, the pagan, but also true of the Jewish person, that everybody, everybody was dead in their sins and trespasses, whether they were religious or not. That even, even having the right rules, even having the right regulations, we fall short, and we are all lost 
except for what God has done for us, but God, except for the but God, we are lost. And so he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that word grace changes everything. In fact, we have a sign in the, in the studio here, grace changes everything. Uh, it does. The, the Greek word is charis. It's the word from which we get charity, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis, uh, or that's how we would spell it in English. Um, it, it's, it's the idea of someone who is wealthy and benevolent, has given a gift, bestowed something upon someone who is by nature, not able to do that thing for themselves, whatever it is, whether it's a, an emperor who gives charis to an entire city or to the kingdom or the empire, or whether it's a, a governor or it's um, some wealthy landowner who does some great thing, they are charitable. They give charis. They give a, a grace. And Paul says that your salvation, your belonging to God, your being in a right covenant relationship with God is an act of God's charis. By charis, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. And you've been raised up, and He and God has raised us up with him, with Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, we're already at the table. We already have a seat at God's table in the heavenly places places with Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might continue to show the immeasurable—I added continue, by the way—might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. I don't know how many times we have to say it. I don't know how many times I have to hear it. I don't know how often we can reiterate it, but there are so many of us who do not believe this truth. We think that salvation is our own doing. We say, yes, yes, you know, God gave me the Bible, and God gave me the regulations, and God gave me baptism, and God gave me whatever, but it's it's up to me to do it. I've got to do it. I've got to do it. I've got to do it. No, wait, that's the wrong way to think about it. Because then every time, every time we sin, every time we mess up, if we think it is our own doing, then we think that we will be its undoing. We think that we will mess it up. We think that we're just terrified that we're going to fall short. We're, we're terrified that we're not going to make it. And are we going to fall short? Yes, we will. That's the whole point. The whole point, the reason Jesus had to come and die, the reason First John chapter 1, his blood has to continue to wash away our sins, to continue to cleanse us, is because we are weak, we are carnal, we are flesh, we are mortal, and we are weak both mortally and morally. We, we make mistakes and we, we die. We're, we're weak. We can't do all the good things that we wish we could do or that we ought to do. And, and we don't refuse or abstain from all the bad things that we should abstain from. Uh, so this salvation, it's not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not not a result of works so that no one may boast. There's the other side of it. Legalism has has two nasty sides. On one side is this self-condemnation, this idea that I, I've messed up, there's no way, I can't do it, I'm, I'm too weak, I've, I've, I've sinned, God's rejected me, I'm out. And on the other side is pride that says, well, like the Pharisee who says, well, at least I'm not like the tax collector, at least I'm not like the Gentiles, at least I'm not like that person, at least I'm not like them. Um, and and we, we become boastful and proud. And Paul says, this isn't a result of works. 
Because if it was, then we could boast and we could say, see, I earned this. I deserve this. God owes this to me. And there probably are some people in that category too. Hey, no, I I keep thinking about Romans 7 when Paul talks about, you know, and and this this is something that on this topic has been very comforting to me when Mm -hmm. Paul talks about in Romans 7, you know, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And I think about if, and I think sometimes this was the purpose of Mm -hmm. so many different people writing the Bible, Mm -hmm. that if Paul struggles with that, Mm -hmm. you know, how much more am I going to struggle? Paul had this Mm -hmm. incredible, you know, transformation from Pharisee, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the devout, zealous Pharisee to who is persecuting Christians to Christian missionary extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's a sense in which we can expect like, oh, when I'm changed, when I'm saved, then I don't do that thing anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't do the things I used to do before. And it's mm-hmm. like, but you're still flesh. Mm-hmm. There's still, you know, like you say, already and not yet. Yes, yes we're saved. Yeah but we're still enduring mm-hmm. sin and sometimes that's going to come through us. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's not to say that that removes the responsibility mm-hmm. for us to try to change, for us to try to do better mm-hmm. and to let Christ's love and what he did on the cross transform us. But it also takes time. Yeah. Like that's, you know, I, I think that, you know, one thing I kept thinking about reading Jacob's question was, yeah, me too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is, uh, you know, so, I, and, and that helps too, like mm-hmm. the reminder that we, none of us are alone in feeling this mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And I think to that point about Romans 7, that that I think contextually, Paul isn't just talking about his own personal struggle. Mm-hmm. I think it's more than that, but I think it includes that. And I think to your point about his his transformation from uh, from Pharisee to, to apostle is that that this is the futility of trying to live under the law, mm-hmm. that the futility is that the end is condemnation, that the law condemns, that the law doesn't set free, that there really is no freedom within yeah. the law. The law just brings condemnation because we've sinned and fallen short. And then he says, who can, who can set me free? And then the answer is, Christ Jesus, and he sets us free. And then the next chapter, Romans 8, Mm -hmm. verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So understanding that salvation is is by grace, and then it's received by faith. And I think that that's where we have to land this first part, is that Mm -hmm. salvation is received by faith. So if charis, the Greek word for the gift, for the grace, um, is so important, just as important is the word pistis, is the word that we translate as faith. And it's not faith just like believing in God or believing in Jesus, but it's about loyalty, that salvation is based upon whether or not we are covenant members of God's family, whether or not we belong to God, is comes down to this question. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you loyal to Jesus? Does Jesus have your loyalty? Mm-hmm. Do you put your faith in Jesus? Now, that begins at baptism. And then, yes, to your point earlier, it's already and it's not yet. It is this 
beginning the transformation that there are things. We don't do those things because we're a follower of Jesus. We used to do those things, but we don't do those things anymore. We're, we're struggling through and try, trying to be changed, to be sanctified. And to your point, it is this process that begins at baptism and it continues through our entire life. But the question isn't, are you perfect? That's not the question. That's not the question by which we determine, are you saved or lost? Are you God's or Satan's? Do you belong to the Lord or you belong to the world? The question is, does Jesus have your pistis? Does Jesus have your loyalty? Does Jesus have your faith? Have you put your faith in King Jesus? Yeah, as as you were saying that, I thought about like what how that faith practically applies to when we mess up and how one of the things I think about a lot lately is the importance of like we have a tendency I think just as people uh, not necessarily even Christians but just people you can you can make Satan a caricature mm-hmm. and so he's the devil red horns everything and then you can also I think taking sin and evil quite seriously in in the context of your faith you can sort of you can sort of think of it as evil as opposed to Satan. And I think one of the benefits in thinking about Satan as an individual, mm-hmm. as as if he's as if he's the devil on your shoulder whispering mm-hmm. in your ear, is I think about strategy. And I think about how great is it? Like Satan gets a two for one. First he gets me to sin. Mm-hmm. He gets me to snap at somebody in a way that I, I man, I didn't like that I did that. Mm-hmm. He gets me to lie mm-hmm. for no reason, you know, mm-hmm. for I, I was I was nervous, I was anxious, and mm-hmm. I lied. Mm-hmm. And th- so he gets me to do something bad, and then after, when I realize I did something bad, he gets to pile on. That's right. Yeah. So he got me to do Accuse it. You. Yeah. And then yeah. he gets to say, "Man, you are worthless. Look mm-hmm. at you doing exactly what you know. That's all you're mm-hmm. good for." Mm-hmm. And I think about that like, man, he so he wins twice. Yeah. You know, he didn't. Right. I, I could have given him one victory mm-hmm. instead of two. Mm-hmm. And part of that faith is trusting that. Like, because I think there's something deep within us that when we sin, when we mess up, we are we judge ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think that's partially just by nature. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a good side of that, and then there's a flesh side of that. Mm-hmm. Because I think there's in a way it feels good. Mm-hmm. It feels good to beat up on yourself mm-hmm. because you go, "I deserve this," yeah. you know. And and there's and there's almost a sense, and I think things like. Um, I don't want to put it all in Catholicism, but things like Catholicism, mm-hmm. that, that very guilt-driven mm-hmm. faith in, in, in Jesus, mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that's somehow, like, if you beat yourself up, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's, you're, you're doing the right thing. Purge this from yourself. Purge yeah. this from yourself, fla- yeah. self-flagellatory mm-hmm. uh, practicing your faith. But Christ comes in and says, I, I've, yes, you do, you do deserve death. Mm-hmm. You do, you do mm-hmm. deserve the same fate as Satan mm-hmm. when you participate in the evil in this mm-hmm. world. But I don't want you to yeah. like that. Yeah. I think that's really, really hard. Yeah. I expect it to take a lifetime to yeah. fully wrap my head around that, if, yeah. if, if at all. But yeah, because that that guilt and shame is a vicious cycle. Totally. It's I always compare it to whenever I'm on a diet and I and I eat something I'm not supposed to. As, as soon as I eat something I'm, I'm not supposed to, I don't say, you know what, I, I messed up and and I need I need to forgive myself. That that's an interesting thought, forgiving ourselves. Mm-hmm. But in the sense of sin, you know, God God forgives me. I'm going to move on, and I'm going to do better. We we don't do. I don't do that with a diet. When I when I whenever I eat something I'm not supposed to, I say, well, pff, I already blew it. I'm yeah. a jerk. I'm an idiot, and and then I just start 
piling the food in my mouth and I just continue on that path of self-destruction. And we do that. And I think sometimes uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we say, well, I'm, I'm a horrible person. And then because we think we're a horrible person, then we sin. And then because we sin, we think, well, see, that confirms I'm a horrible person. And we just continue on that path of self-destruction. Whereas Jesus sets us free from that and say, says, it's not about what you've done. It's about what I've done for you. Keep your eyes fixed on me. I'm going to set you free. And then verse 10 of Ephesians 2 because of what he's done, we are his masterpiece, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre- prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So because we are saved, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved, we go and do these good works. But we can only do that when we have this confidence that we really are set free from sin, knowing that our hands, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus done, they're sanctified hands mm-hmm. and the things that they touch, they bless, and our feet are sanctified feet, and where they take us, God brings blessing, and our mouth is a sanctified mouth, and what it speaks, it speaks the blessings of God. And when we embrace that reality as, this is who I am in Christ Jesus, this is what I get to participate in in the world, we really can only have that mindset and that mentality and live out the good news when we, when we believe that we are saved by grace. I just want to take a short break from our Bible study to tell you that if you are enjoying this discussion, you might also enjoy my book, Beyond the Verse. You can find the audio version of the book at radicallychristian.com slash audible. That's radicallychristian.com slash audible. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can actually get my book for free when you sign up for a free trial. So go to radicallychristian.com slash audible. Now back to the Bible study. Okay, so that's... That's sort of the first part of the question, right? So how do we have confidence? And mm-hmm. I, I think the answer to that question is by believing the gospel, yeah. because the gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith. And does that mean that we can go on sinning so that grace may abound? <laughs> Paul was accused of saying, no, of course he would say. That doesn't mean we can go on sinning so that grace may abound. We died to sin. How can we live it any longer? That's his whole point in Romans 6, because people, every time you say we're saved by grace through faith, if I say that, I get accused of the exact same thing Paul was accused of. Ah, you're saying we could just live a lawless life. And Paul says, of course not. That's ridiculous. God forbid anybody take that away from the gospel message. But we have to preach this because this is the gospel. Even if some people confuse it, even if some people twist it, even if some people pervert grace into a license to sin, we cannot stop preaching that salvation is by grace through faith. And because we're afraid people are going to pervert it, we've perverted ourselves. Mm. We have we have convinced ourselves that it's not really by grace through faith, or it's not really just by grace through faith. It's not really, uh, but, but oh yeah, but don't forget, you can, don't forget, you can. And we've so done that to people and to ourselves that we've left ourselves without confidence. So how do we have confidence that we are saved in spite of our struggles? By believing the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith. Okay, so, but, but more specifically, uh, Jacob's question revolved around 1 John 3, 19 through 20, which talks about condemnation, our heart condemning us. Um, and there's a couple different ways we could take this, actually. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start at 1 John 3 and verse 9, and we're going to read uh, several verses, but um, this is an interesting passage. So let's start in 1 John 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So there's a good, there's a good thought right there. Now, he's not, he's not saying no one born of God makes a mistake. He's saying no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Nobody, mm. nobody that's God's child just 
goes on willy-nilly doing what they were doing before, living in lawless rebellion. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John's whole point is love one another, and stop sinning, like stop doing that stuff and love each other. And these two things are in contrast and and in harmony here. Uh, He says, uh, verse 11, uh, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Again, this is the evidence. That's why it's the tagline of radicallychristian.com. It's why it's the tagline of our podcast. We're trying to learn to love like Jesus. Mm-hmm. This is what it looks like to belong to God, is have love for one another. Because we love one another. This is how we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John is very black and white. (laughs) You either love your brother or you're a murderer. Like there's no in between. If you don't love your brothers, if you don't love others, then you not only hate them, but you're a murderer and you don't have life abiding in you. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Okay, so that's 18. We're going to start with verse 18 for just a second. So, I mean, the the whole context is stop sinning and love each other. And if you don't love each other, then you're a murderer. And it's evident that you don't belong to God. If you belong to God, if you are his child, then you bear a family resemblance. And the family resemblance is loving each other. And it looks like laying down your life for your brothers, the way Jesus laid his life down for you. And he says, even more to spell that out, to flesh that out, it is that when you have the world's goods, and you see your brother in need, You give them goods. You take care of them, even at the cost to yourself. So this whole passage leading up to this is very much on application. Here's what you do. Not so much on um, sort of like theology or even theology. Soteriology would be the fancy word for it. Like, how do we know that we're saved? So the next verses, there's two different ways to take it. Starting in verse 19, we could take it from the perspective of um, as some might say, a digression, like like John sort of inserts this as a parenthetical statement to say, oh, okay, yes, that's true. Hold on to that. And then let's think about this. And then comes back to his topic. So it could be that he's off topic just a little bit. And that's how most people take it. Most people take it that way. Or it could be that this flows very much with what he's already talking about. So he says in verse 19, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Okay, so there's two different ways we could take this. The first way is the most popular way. It's the way most people take it. And I think it's it's to Jacob's point um, that most people take it this way, that it, it's about self-doubt. So maybe what John is saying is, 
this is the way you should be. You should love your brothers. You should lay down your life the way Jesus laid his life down for us. Um, but you're going to fall short in that mm. and you're going to feel guilty and you're going to feel like maybe I haven't done enough. Maybe I'm not enough. Maybe I've, I've, I've sinned too much and you're going to feel convicted and guilty and ashamed. And, and you need to um, realize that God is greater than your feelings. God's, mm. God's salvation for you is bigger than how you feel about yourself. Mm. There's a lot of good in that. There's a lot of truth in that. Um, let me read from the message and then from the New Living Translation. So these are sort of paraphrases. Uh, Eugene Peterson says in the, the message, my dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there is something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. And friends, once that's taken care of and we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves, we're bold and free before God. So, I mean, th there's a lot of truth, whether that's what John means exactly or not. And we'll talk about another way to take that. There's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to, to this that I think could be supported by other passages of Scripture. Yeah. New Living Translation says, Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and He knows everything. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence. Okay, so let me stop talking for just a second. Travis, any any thoughts on, on that first interpretation? Yeah, you already brought up you know, some of the paradox that exists in this idea of you know, faith versus works and mm -hmm. grace versus, uh, versus justice, uh, yeah. you know, mercy versus justice. Yeah. And, um, it just occurs to me that like, I think at the same time as it's, as it's very difficult to wrap our minds around those paradoxes, I, we've, we've brought up paradoxes a couple times mm -hmm. recently in the, in the last couple episodes. And it's, it's it's more encouraging for me to to focus on the paradoxes in scripture to mm -hmm. hold these mm -hmm. seemingly competing ideas in my head at the same time yeah. because if christianity were just some paint by numbers adventure <laughs> that's a good way to put it then you wouldn't have things like that that's right that's and right and you wouldn't have you probably wouldn't have you know instances where you know i, I always find it interesting i can't remember which one that we believe you know peter which gospel Peter may have had a hand in mm -hmm. sort of helping dictate. Yeah. Whichever one it was, there's some pretty bad stuff in there about Peter. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I always and then Paul, you know, in the early part of Acts mm -hmm. is, you know, you know, Luke writes about him doing some pretty horrific things. Right, right. And then writes about his transformation. Right. Paul references his acts many times. Right. You know, his 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 or his before life, before coming face to face with Jesus. He writes about it many times in his letters. Yeah. And then he says things like in Romans 7, you know, I do what I don't want to do and vice mm -hmm. versa. Not something you would probably write if you were trying to dupe anybody, if mm -hmm. you were trying to. And so that that alone is encouraging to my faith yeah. that there is real substance to mm -hmm. what's being written here, mm -hmm. just on as a whole. Um, and, I, and I think that that really helps me with issues like this that mm -hmm. are, you know, Again, one of the things I was struck with reading Jacob's question was like, I kept going, did he, did he write this or did I? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, because it, it's, it's, but it's something that I'm sure Jacob and, and others that feel this way, it feels so subjective. Mm -hmm. You know, like Paul talks about, I'm the chief of sinners. You know, no, you have no idea how bad I am. Yeah. And, 
and yet how much I want to change. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you, you can just go read Paul mm-hmm. and hear him talk about that. Mm-hmm. As he's doing all of these great works and, mm-hmm. and, and daily putting his life on the line mm-hmm. for the kingdom, mm-hmm. and Peter doing the same, and John doing the same. And um, I think, I just keep thinking about how that's so encouraging to me yeah. that, that we are, we're, we've got our work cut out for us. You yeah. know, our, the, whatever we're feeling in this area of, of, of self-doubt, like mm-hmm. that's part of our heritage. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's, yeah. p- that's part of the leaders that have gone before yeah. us. That, that's what we all have in common, that, yeah. that what every Christian, every, everybody in our movement besides Jesus himself, yeah. and, and he even shares in our humanity, mm-hmm. uh, but what we, every follower of Jesus has in common is our sin. That that's what we have in common is that we're all flawed, broken people. It's not like, well, you know, the the apostles they were pretty awesome and pretty flawless, but but now we're a bunch of messed up. No, 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 we're, yeah. we're all messed up people. And so and so, yes, th- to your point, absolutely. And and you know that they struggled with their own self doubt. So if John is saying here that God's God's judgment of you is what matters, not your judgment of yourself. Paul even says something very similar to the Corinthian church. He says, I don't even, he says, it's it's no matter to me whether I'm judged by anybody. I don't even judge myself. Yeah. And so maybe that is what, what John is saying here. But I, I actually ran into a commentary from the Pillar Commentary, and and the way he talks about it, I actually, I really like this interpretation because it seems to flow a little bit better with what John is saying. And if if the first interpretation, again, which most people take, is that it's a heart that's filled with self-doubt, this other t- interpretation would be a heart that's filled with meanness. So a heart mm-hmm. that says, um, that's foolish. Like, that's that's really foolish. To give away your stuff, like when somebody else needs something and our heart tries to convince us, don't, don't give your stuff to them. Don't lay down your life for other people. Don't turn the other cheek. Don't go the extra mile. Don't give away what's yours. This belongs to you. And our heart says no, and God says yes. God says love this way, and our heart says no, I don't want to. And so reading it that way, let's let's go back to the text in verse 19. It says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. And the word reassure there means to convince or persuade. Mm. So it's the idea of this is the way that we know that we are of the truth. If we love this way, if we lay down our lives, if we help one another, if we have the world's goods and we we give that away, as opposed to, verse 17, closing our heart against him. So that's the kind of heart he's talking about, is a closed heart, is a heart that says, I don't want to give, I don't want to love, I don't want to do this, I don't want to sacrifice. That's the sort of heart that needs reassurance. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily in context here, it's not necessarily a doubting heart as much as it is a closed heart, That a heart that needs to be convinced or persuaded to be opened up. And so perhaps what John is saying is our heart says, no, our heart is closed off, and in the presence of God before him, we need to have our heart assured, we need to have our heart convinced, we need to have our heart persuaded. And then he says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Everything. So again, this interpretation would say our heart condemning us would be in the sense of 
Travis, don't be foolish. Don't give away your stuff. Don't that you don't have any responsibility to do that. You don't need to do that. And God says, no, you do. You mm-hmm. do need to do that. It's not foolish. It's the right thing to do to give away your things, to love people, to lay down your life for your brother. So God is greater than our hearts in the sense that when our heart tells us no, don't love, and God says, yes, absolutely do love, then then listen to God and not to your heart. Uh, verse 21, he says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if we're able to convince our heart or reassure our heart or persuade our heart to be open, to lay down our life for our brothers, to, to give our worldly goods away to them, then we can have confidence before God. And again, that's keeping with the context because the context says that we can have confidence before God if we love God. The brothers. He says, this is how we know, this is how we know that we've passed, verse 14, out of death and into life because we love the brothers. And so the only way to have that sort of confidence is to have that sort of heart. And the only way to have that sort of heart is for our heart to be convinced or persuaded. And, and we have to be convinced or persuaded by recognizing that God is greater than our heart, that our heart has the tendency to say no, to be stingy, to be closed off, but God is greater than our heart. But I think that I can tell you from recent personal experience that, you know, I, I was thinking about that verse where Jesus talks about to whom much is given, much mm-hmm. more will be given, and mm-hmm. to whom what, you know, nothing is given, even mm-hmm. what he has will be taken away. Right. I've been encouraged to think about that more recently as a principle that works on a lot of different, you know, it's, it's not necessarily Jesus saying, this is how I want it to be. He's saying, mm-hmm. this is how it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I, I've never, I've, I've realized, I've been reminding myself more and more that anytime somebody, I have the opportunity to help somebody, somebody's in need, and mm-hmm. I have the opportunity to help them, and I have that voice going, you mm-hmm. don't need to do this, not mm-hmm. on you, and then I've got the voice going, but you should, mm-hmm. you know, you should, you know, you, you technically can, mm-hmm. you know, and I go, if I give into that, you technically can voice, I've never suffered from it mm-hmm. i've never missed you know if it's money i've never missed it mm-hmm. you know, even when i thought i would mm-hmm. i've never you know i've never kicked myself for for man, why would you be so giving you know mm-hmm. <laughs> i've never done that mm-hmm. uh whereas the other way i definitely have mm-hmm. um, i should have yeah yeah and also the more i do it the easier it gets the next time mm-hmm. you know so i think that with all of this stuff that we're talking about you know if if you can you can love despite if you can love others mm-hmm. and even yourself despite the guilt mm-hmm. despite your mistrust mm-hmm. despite like if you can you do it once it gets easier the second time mm-hmm. and the second time it gets a little easier the third time mm-hmm. and um and so i keep thinking about that you know in terms of what we're talking about about truly changing our hearts that it is gradual mm-hmm. but if you get started well then you're a lot further along than yeah. than than just nothing at all and and, and continuing to to, to waste away in, mm-hmm. in, in sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I think both of those interpretations and everything that we're talking about really plays into each other. And and it all goes back to Jesus. Yeah. Everything goes back to Jesus is oh, yeah. that that yeah. Jesus' cross, what Jesus did at the cross, teaches us who we are. It teaches us that we're saved as an act of God's grace Mm -hmm. and that when we put our faith in Jesus and what he did at the cross, what he did in being raised from the dead, what he's doing right now as our intercessor, as our advocate, as our high priest, what has been done for us and who we are in Christ Jesus, and then we live that out 
by opening up our heart, by sacrificing ourselves, by even if, even if, like you said, we, we usually don't miss it, but even if we did, even if we, even if we were in poverty because of what we did for our brothers and sisters, then what we would gain is still mm. more than what we would have lost because what we lost was material goods, but what we gained was confidence before God. I really am. I really am. Praise God. Surprisingly, in spite of everything, I really am one of God's children. How do you know? Because this is how I love people. This is what's going on in my life that, that I'm a part of this type of self-sacrificing community. This is what it looks like, and this is how we can have confidence. And that confidence before God that comes from believing the gospel, having faith in Jesus, and loving our neighbor, loving our brothers and sisters, sacrificing ourselves, then we have this confidence before God, and that is worth its weight in gold. You know, another thing I was thinking, something you said reminded me of it was uh, Marcus Stinson, one of our ministers here, mm-hmm. got uh, he preached this uh, very recently here in I really encourage, I'll plug that lesson. Anybody who wants to go watch it, you got to go watch it. Um, but he talked about meeting God. Mm-hmm. And he talked about um, some of his experiences of asking, you know, am I really just serving God? Am I being a Christian? Am I trying to live right mm-hmm. because I want to go to heaven? Mm-hmm. Or, and I was thinking the or, that it, there's a total difference in my Christian walk when I'm living that way, that mm-hmm. you know, I'm just just trying to get to the end of the line. I mm-hmm. hope God smiles on me when I die. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a difference, big difference between that and Jesus loved me. You know, Jesus sacrificed for me. Why would I not do that for somebody else? Mm-hmm. Like what? It, and I'm, I'm making his sacrifice nothing mm-hmm. if I don't pay it forward. Mm-hmm. And that was the other thing I was thinking that, you know, in, in in terms, I think I think a lot of things, times with things like this, when we're struggling with our self confidence, mm-hmm. it does come down to a foundational, mm-hmm. a fundamental issue of, well, what do we really want out of this? Yeah. You know, do we want to, do we do we just want to get to heaven when it's over, mm-hmm. so that we've got the afterlife taken care of? You know, that box mm-hmm. is checked, mm-hmm. or is there a real change? Mm-hmm. And and his point in the lesson was, well, you don't get that change unless you've really met God, unless mm-hmm. you've really you know, owned up to your past and you're serious about what you want to do with your future and what you want your future to look like and uh, how, how you're going to affect people. Yeah, absolutely. It's the difference between we do this because we're saved Mm -hmm. and doing this in order to be saved. And if we do this in order to be saved, Mm -hmm. we'll always do the minimum. We'll always just try to, you know, skirt that line. But if we do this because we're saved, then we say, this is how Jesus lived. This is how Jesus lives. This is what Jesus has done for me. Why wouldn't I do this for my brothers and sisters? This is what it looks like to live out the gospel. Thank you so much for being part of the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I want to give a special thanks to Travis Polly and to our McDermott Road Church family for making this podcast possible. As always, we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.